quiet on the Australian front. After years of war, it is a brief respite from the roar of constant gunfire and explosions across the barren landscape. The fused trees left coated with the ash of thousands of artillery shells, the sky blackened with the endless smoke of war. The remaining Australian soldiers cower in bombed-out trenches, knee-deep in feathers of their fallen opponents, desperately holding the line against a relentless onslaught. The quiet brings relief and terror, for quiet only meant the enemy was massing for a charge. It was always true. As expected, the quiet was disrupted by a distant, inhuman battle cry. The sound caused the hair of the battle-hardened Australian warriors to stand on end. This was their foe. And by the sound of it, massed in numbers they had never seen before. Giving the signal, they sounded the alarm for their artillery to fire a barrage, and the air was rent with the whistles of dozens of artillery shells meant to cripple their opponents as they charged. But the men on the front lines knew better. There were too many. Locking and loading their weapons, they prepared to give their last in the defense of their homeland against the abject brutality of their foe. If this line fell, it was the last before they took the entire island, from which they knew attacks would be launched across the seas to Asia, to Africa, to Europe, and the Americas. They were all that stood between the entire Earth and annihilation. The sound grew louder and more raucous and the men on the front line braced for their doom against an impenetrable line of hundreds of thousands of emus. Okay, so that's not exactly how it happened, but the Great Emu War was a real thing, and from the polls I put on social media, y'all want to hear about it. So here's the true story. I did the math because I was simply curious, and the last episode that I released that had nothing to do with the series, that was had nothing to do with current events, that was everything to do with just a historical historical event that was the reason I decided to start this podcast. I went back and looked because I was curious about how long it had been since I'd been since I'd released an episode like that. And the last episode that I released that was again not part of a series, not related to a current event, not an emergency update was my Santa Claus episode, released on December 24th, 2020. It has been two and a half years since I've released an episode just for fun. That has nothing to do with a wider series, that has nothing to do with current events, it has everything to do with just one episode about one event where I just cover one thing. I'm gonna tell you what, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back doing episodes like this. I intend to continue to release episodes like this again. It's been a really long time. I've missed doing it. I just kind of got discouraged after a while because my Conflict of Nations series was way more than I expected it to be. I bit off so much more than I could chew with that. And uh, I'm going to plan a little bit better to, to be releasing things like that in the future. But if you're still with me, if you've come this far, if you've been there since my first episodes that I released back in, gosh, like February of 2020, thanks for being back here. It's good to be back doing episodes like this. I'm happy to be back. And today we're covering something that I am excited to cover, that I've been excited to cover since, 
I mean, I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. I figured, why not kick off this new chapter of Tanner Talks About Stuff that happened with this episode, which again, on social media, you guys wanted to hear about it. So remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me, let me know that you enjoy hearing what I'm talking about and how I present this information. Now, I'm not going to waste too much time talking about, uh, you know, trying to pitch myself to you again. Let's get right into this. 1920s and 1930s Australia was kind of like 1870s America. It was the Wild West. Lawlessness reigned, and people settled wherever they could find land, stockpiling lots of guns and ammunition against anyone who was interested in taking it from them. This was exacerbated by the onset of the Great Depression in 1929 and 1930, which drove people from population centers and encouraged them to settle where they could grow their own food and raise their own livestock. And they did that in Australia, particularly incentivized by the Australian government. See, when Britain joined World War I back in 1914, Australia did too, because Australia was part of Britain, it was part of the British Empire, and a lot of Australian men went off to fight the Ottoman Empire at Gallipoli. So after the war, these men arrived home to little fanfare, and the Australian government scrounged to find ways to compensate them. When the call came down from the king in 1915 that the Aussies and New Zealanders were being called up to go to storm the beaches of Turkey, the crown needed incentives to get men to go. And that came in the form of the promise of land parcels. In 1915, they enacted a policy that allowed returning soldiers to apply for land grants. And at this, tens of thousands of men leapt at the opportunity, only for many of them to die at the hands of the Turks before they could return home to see their new land. In the 1920s, with the expansion of the Australian state, the Australian government acquired a lot more land to give out and continued handing out land grants to the veterans of the war, hoping it would keep the veterans happy while also providing a way to make Australia more of a self-sufficient state in terms of food. So in the end, they allocated a little over 90,000 square kilometers to the soldiers, which is about the size of Portugal, and they established around 23,000 farms on this land, shipping off a whole lot of brand new farmers to go tame the wild Australian wilderness. The work proved to be pretty tough. Australia is not widely known for its verdant farmland. Farmers tried establishing dairy farms, they tried pig farms, they tried fruit farms, and barely half of them managed success. Those who did not find the same success were known to simply walk off the land and go back to Australian cities, never to return to their farms. However, for many of the farmers, one of the crops that seemed to grow pretty well was wheat. When word spread that wheat was cheap and manageable, farmers far and wide began growing wheat. So this posed yet another problem for the same farmers, because as they all began growing the same crops, their profit margins began to shrink substantially due to the oversaturation of the market. See, when everyone's selling wheat, you want to buy whoever's selling it the cheapest. And so whoever's selling it cheapest makes more money. People try to sell it cheaper than them. You know, it's just a typical, that's just how the free market works. So the situation worsened with the onset of the Great Depression in 1929, which caused the prices of wheat to fall even further. In crisis, and alarmed that Australia could very much run out of food, the Australian government promised to subsidize that kind of wheat and to establish price controls for the wheat, encouraging farmers to continue focusing on their farms and focusing on the growth of grain so that Australia would have food. 
though these subsidies and price controls never ultimately came to fruition. By 1932, three years later, things were so bad that many farmers threatened not even to deliver their stocks of grain after the harvest. A movement even began in Western Australia that meant to secede from the rest of the nation, as many rural farmers had lost faith in the government, and it was rapidly gaining steam. For the authorities, the situation was already dire. And then came the emus. Emu. Dromaeus nobehalandiae, flightless bird of Australia that is the second largest living bird. The emu is more than 1.5 meters, or 5 feet, tall, and may weigh more than 45 kilograms or 100 pounds. Emu is the sole living member of the family Dromaeidae, of the order Casuariformis, which also includes the Casauris. The common emu is stout-bodied and long-legged, like its relative, the Casauri. Both sexes are brownish, with a dark gray head and neck. Emus can dash away at nearly 50 kilometers or 30 miles per hour. If cornered, they kick with their big three-toed feet. Emus mate for life. The male incubates seven to ten dark green eggs, 13 centimeters or five inches long, in the ground in a nest for about 60 days. The striped young soon run with the adults. In small flocks, emus forage for fruits and insects, but may also damage crops. The peculiar structure of the trachea of the emu is correlated with the loud, booming note of the bird during breeding season. Three subspecies are recognized, inhabiting northern, southeastern, and southwestern Australia. A fourth, now extinct, lived on Tasmania. <coughs> Emus are migratory creatures, meaning they move from place to place following seasonal patterns or other ecological factors, and they generally travel in large herds. When Australian farmers back in the 20s and 30s began irrigating the dry land, new grasses and other plants began to spring up, catching the eyes of the nomadic emu herds who started stopping along their established route when they saw the sprawling fields of grain. Emus are foragers, eating the sparse grasses in the Australian outback, lucky to find some plants, seeds, or insects along the way. So, when there's a giant swath of land coated in long grass, you can bet your top dollar that a horde of traveling emus will take a snap at it. In the summer of 1932, that's exactly what they did. The Australian government started receiving these panicked reports of as many as 20,000 emus descending on Australian farms in Western Australia, eating up huge amounts of grain and trampling much of what was left. As they came in wind, the emus were leaving huge gaps and special fences and letting other rodents in, such as rabbits, to clean up the few crops that were not harmed by them. What little wheat was left was still dirt cheap, leaving these farmers in abysmal poverty. The farmers, many ex-military, were able to fight off a few at a time with rifles and other weapons, but they knew they could not manage this without help. So in the fall of 1932, they organized a diplomatic envoy and traveled to meet with someone, anyone, in the Australian government. Enter Sir George Purse. Born in South Australia and raised as a carpenter, he'd moved to Western Australia in the very late 1800s to help start a unionization movement there. He'd become a senator in 1901 and had remained in that position until the emu crisis of 1932. During World War I, George had a prominent role in making sure Australia was sending enough men to the shores of Gallipoli, and was familiar with the plight of the soldiers who returned. When approached by the group of destitute farmers who had traveled from his home in Western Australia to seek help with their emu problem, George listened intently and mulled over his options. 
because most of the farmers were ex-military, most of which had served in the Great War, they already had one particular weapon in mind. The machine gun. George thought this was a swell idea. He gave the go-ahead, but under specific stipulations, the machine guns could be used, but only by active military, and the farmers would provide housing and food to soldiers sent to cull the emus. Then, the same farmers would pay for any ammunition used on the birds. In addition, he suggested that gunning down huge numbers of emus could be good target practice for the Australian military, who hadn't been in an armed conflict in nearly 15 years by that point. One of the more unspoken motives for the deployment of, West, of, of soldiers to Western Australia to fight off the emus is that it would strengthen the ties between Western Australia and the rest of the nation and help quiet all this crazy secessionist talk. So, in October of 1932, the Australian government dispatched soldiers with machine guns to the Australian outback with the full intention of fighting emus, all under the command of Major Gwynedd Purves Win Aubrey Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of Royal Australian Artillery. Oh yeah, they literally sent a major to do this. This was an official military sanctioned operation to fight birds. 30s were a crazy time. Well, immediately things started going wrong. While the emus usually traveled in large packs, making them ideal mass targets for machine guns, Right when the troops arrived, the region was hit by several days of heavy rainfall, which scattered the emus into several smaller packs, the individual birds much further apart than before. Once the rain finally stopped, the locals reported the location of about 50 emus nearby, and the soldiers set out to pursue their targets. They couldn't get close to the birds for fear of them panicking, but their guns didn't have the range necessary to be effective from far away, so... The farmers started trying to herd the birds closer together and then push them toward the guns. And so, once that had happened, the soldiers released two barrages of gunfire. And while the first was pretty ineffective due to the range, the second one was able to hit their mark and drop, quote, a number of birds. Now, a number could mean one, or 25, or a hundred, but that's what they said. They said a number of birds. <laughs> a number of birds. Later that same day, the troops encountered another herd of emus and released another volley of gunfire, with the commander reporting, quote, perhaps a dozen emus killed. So we went from a number, which again could be one, could be a hundred, to, quote, a dozen. So a number is probably less than a dozen. <laughs> a few days later, the troops got reports of a... <laughs> this story's so crazy. A few days later, the troops got reports of a huge herd of emus heading toward their position, so they set up an ambush. They were shocked to see upwards of a thousand emus coming right at them and waited until the emus were nearly in range before opening fire. Unfortunately for them, after only 12 birds were done in, the guns jammed and the rest of the emus scattered. No other emus were seen that day. And this is when it gets kind of crazy, honestly. So by the end of the first week of the operation, soldiers from the front start sending in these weird reports that the emus are adapting and organizing. According to one report, quote, Each pack seems to have its own leader now, a big, black-plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while its mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. <laughs> They start sending in reports that the emus are organizing. I'm just thinking of that scene in Chicken Run when he's like, I told you they was organized. <laughs> Guys, this is the craziest story I think I've covered so far. This is 
I've been waiting to cover this for so long. I'm so happy that we're finally doing it. I'm so glad you're here with me. This is wonderful. So in response, the soldiers try to mount a machine gun on a truck to surprise the emus, but their organization, but the emus organization was so effective that they were able to take off running before the truck was even close. And at that point, the army reported 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been fired, but as few as 50 emus had been killed. On the 8th of November, 1932, following negative media coverage and disapproval from the Australian House of Commons, George Peirce withdrew the military from the area. Their hopes of firing thousands of rounds into huge masses of emu bodies were dashed, and the crestfallen soldiers retreated from the emus. Fortunately, Commander Meredith reported no casualties on his official military report, so that was something. What he said when he got back what he said about the emus is probably the wildest thing about this whole debacle. So the, the people in the house of commons, the Australian house of commons, they were like, bro, what happened? Like what is going on out there in Western Australia? And this dude says this quote, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. (laughs) (laughs) they are like Zulus whom even dumb, dumb bullets could not stop. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it feels like Meredith Meredith had some crazy encounter with a group of emus that he's just not going to talk about. Something happened out there that scarred this dude for life. And he's just not even going to say it. He's just, (laughs) Oh my gosh. We got to get through this. Okay. It wasn't over though. The emus were still there and they were still wreaking havoc on farms across Western Australia. Just a few days after the withdrawal of forces from the area, farmers beseeched the government for help yet again, this time aided by the premier of Western Australia, Sir James Mitchell. Once again, the Australian military was fielded to fight off hordes of emus, but this time they sent in more, a lot more men. Once again, the coordination of the emus hindered their progress as they scattered whenever the military approached, but after several failed operations, the military adapted. A month into the second operation, Meredith reported almost 1,000 confirmed emu kills, with 2,500 more wounded likely to have died from their injuries. I mean, can we confirm with 100% certainty this claim? I'm gonna say no. Obviously, Meredith's pride was wounded, by these emus, and we could see how he really felt about them with how he described them after the first operation. So, I don't know. I mean, going from, like, 50 kills to over a 1,000, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. But, that said, news outlets the year after did report that the operation was a success, and the gunfire drove the emus away from the farm, saving much of what was left of the wheat. That said, if you thought a 1,000 dead birds is a lot... The Australian government withdrew the troops and refused to send any back when asked for assistance again in 1934, and this happened several more times in the decades following. Instead, they instituted a bounty system. And the way a bounty system works is essentially, you bring back a dead animal skin, we will give you money for it. So every emu killed was a certain amount of money awarded to the one who killed it. So, in 1934, the Australian populace set off to make some money. In a six-month period in 1934, over 57,000 bounties were claimed, meaning regular farmers with guns did a whole lot better than the Australian military. But the emu war 
was over. With the Australian military in defeat, in its place, the government funded a number of long, exclusionary fences that they hoped would keep the emus out, which seems to have been somewhat effective. Then, in 1950, the government allocated 500 rounds of ammunition to be released to the farmers to fight off more emus. So I guess you could say the, e the emu war never really ended in 1934. 1932, 1934. Seems like in 1950, they were still fighting these emus. The emus play the long game, I'll tell you what. They're, they're out to play the long game. So, today, Australia's emu problem seems to be more or less well-managed. My evidence is that there hasn't been another great emu war. In essence, the conflict between Australian and emu has passed into legend, spawning a full-length musical called The Great Emu War of 1932, composed by Australian music composer James Court, and a feature action comedy movie, due to be released in 2024, and I think Rob Schneider's in that, I can't be totally sure, not only these two, but the Great Emu War has also spawned hundreds, if not thousands, of incredible internet memes. Today, with the sprawling populations in Australia, and the modern weaponry, and the contemporary military tactics utilized by the Australian military, chances of another Great Emu invasion happening are very low. Very low, but never zero. For a first episode back after a very long hiatus, I'd say that went pretty well. I'm happy to be doing it. That was really fun. Uh, thank you all for joining me on this journey when we're talking about the Great Emu War of 1932. This was really fun. <laughs> Again, if you enjoy the podcast, remember, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know what you enjoy about the podcast. If you're able to write a comment, that would really mean a lot to me. I'm not going to stick around here for too long talking your ear off about, you know, here's what I'm looking forward to. Here's what I'm going to do in the future. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep writing new episodes. I'm going to keep making new episodes. This one was a little bit shorter. Um, in the future, I will plan to do, uh, something a little bit different, uh, stretch these episodes a little bit longer, give you a little bit more content with these. I just really wanted to get an episode out. I was so tired of just staring at my inventory that hadn't been updated in months and months. And I just, was, I just, needed to get one out so I'm, I'm glad to have gotten it out again if you made it this far thank you for listening I will have more content to you as soon as I possibly can until then go eat some good food y'all fried chicken's one of my favorites eat some in my stead I love you I love you